Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing great. We were just talking uh, before we started today, and we figured it would be better just to hit record and go for it. So um, one of the things I thought maybe we could start off with is, uh, you know, just maybe a meta discussion on, on podcasting, podcasting in general. Um, it started off with us having a conversation about um, advertising uh, podcasts, how do people discover podcasts, what should we be doing in our own work here uh, that's relevant to people, how do we reach more people, though we have a relatively niche audience. And so we kind of had a discussion about the value of advertising on social media, how to cut things down. I thought that would be an interesting place to start because we've had a few questions in the past about podcasting in general, simply because it's a, a medium of communication that has some growing interest in, in education. Yeah, and I guess it's uh, becoming more and more relevant, especially with students being able to go and use podcasting as a, a medium for assignments and, and so on and so forth, and even just uh, maybe from an instruction standpoint as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about is just, uh, you know, why do people listen to podcasts and how do they find uh, these podcasts and is it from like social media posts? Um, I mean, I think maybe some of that awareness might be from there, um, you know, uh, but we also talked about how we unsubscribe to some podcasts and what were some of the reasons for that. And uh, partly, I mean, uh, I won't name which one that we unsubscribe to, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it was the same type of content uh, over and over. I mean, they were talking about a certain, it was the same news, it was the same stuff. And at the end of it, it's... Um, I mean, it is really popular, this particular podcast, but I just find I, I think I could probably spend that hour or half an hour just listening to a book and it'd probably be more beneficial and I can uh, find out about the news from somebody else. I, I, but to me, this is really useful and this is why I wanted it to be your kind of our EdTech office hours. So we, I have had questions from people in the past, two questions questions about how we do this, you know, can you help me fix my computer? I have to give a presentation, you know, the tech tips, but also um, kind of more meta questions about podcasting in general, because people have asked me which podcasts I listen to and how, how did I come to discover those podcasts? And that's in turn kind of changed how I think about, um, you know, reaching our audience uh, the idea of talking with our audience rather than like at our audience, right? Like if people bring us things, we try to, you and I try to surface articles that we think would be useful or interesting to people. We try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who might be listening, primarily educator students, where other podcasts probably have a different audience. And so I guess my question is, is twofold. How do we discover content or anything that we've ever discovered, even if we're not currently listening to podcasts? I'd listen to a whole bunch. I know that Currently, you said you're not listening to that many, but how did we discover those? And what were the factors uh, that influenced our continual subscription versus unsubscription? Yeah, and I think partly I'll tell you from my perspective, uh, 
I would say my discovery for some of these podcasts that I've listened to, which since then, I mean, I've just gotten really busy, but a lot of it has been through word of mouth. You know, yeah. people that I know suggesting, hey, maybe listen to this, uh, or it's uh, it maybe a uh, a writer of a book that has their own podcast, and then you know, there's uh, they can now you can kind of uh, have that connection further than just the book and listen to what they're working on right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just come down to there's, uh, there's only so many hours in the day for myself. And uh, so I got to go and, you know, maximize that time. And uh, unfortunately, between teaching, um, you know, my day job of consulting, doing a variety of uh, extracurricular activities and volunteering and stuff, there's just not enough time to go and there's just too much content, to be honest, in the world. So, yeah, but it's a good question, like discovery, right? Like, so, uh, someone who wants to start a podcast, maybe a student wants to start one or they want to advertise, um, or a faculty member wants to start one. I want to talk about this. I don't think anyone's talking about this topic. How do I get people to discover it? And so I did some Googling. Are there podcast recommendation engines? Are there discovery tools? And the answer is yes. Um, there's a couple. In fact, there was one that I stumbled upon today because I happened to be looking around and it was called uh, Rephonic. So R-E-P-H-O-N-I-C. I don't know if this is a particularly good one. Okay. And you can type in our podcast and it kind of pairs it with other podcasts. In fact, it's interesting that we're paired. Um, <laughs> it pairs us with a lot of other podcasts that I listen to, which is either on point or not on point. It depends how you look at it, I suppose. But I've never used any of these tools. Okay. I went looking for them to answer that question. And so here's an example of a podcast recommendation. Um, but I've never personally used them. And so I guess the question I have is that, is that a good piece of advice to give somebody if I myself haven't used the tools? Like you, when I think about it, I think of word of mouth, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the podcast that I listened to came from two areas. Either So I started listening to podcasts very early on. And so some of the earliest podcasts were not coincidentally technology podcasts, particularly This Week in Tech, which has been around for like almost 20 years, right? And so they have a, a network, this, you know, Windows Weekly, MacBreak Weekly, Security Now, they have a bunch of them and it's hosted by someone who was a TV personality that I like to bring up. And so there's like a personal connection there. This is a TV tech personality, his name is Leo Laporte, someone I love to watch after school in high school. He went to university, never heard about this person again. Oh, I wonder what that person's up to. Oh, and then get into podcasting. They've you know, world serendipitously um, so those are the first ones I subscribe to, and those are the ones that I still listen to, but I didn't have to continue listening to them. I could have unsubscribed like you did with, uh, we'll just leave it as unnamed podcast for now. That's also very popular. So what is the differentiating factor in discovery and, and, and listening? And I think it's word of mouth for discovery. Um, I actually use a podcast app. Um, the only discovery tool that I've used that is useful is part of this podcast app. And unfortunately, I don't think this podcast app is available on platforms outside of Apple. Um, okay. You could use it on the web. You can use it on the web. So like it's called Overcast, overcast.fm. 
Um, but you can add podcasts and you can search for them, but you can search uh, for, you know, a particular podcast and it'll give you other ones that are very like, like-minded. So I think that's useful, but so I've discovered a few that way, but when I think about ones I continued listening to, and if I was to give advice to someone as a, you know, I guess as kind of a, almost a little bit better than an amateur podcaster, what are the things that you would want to do? It's to stick to the audience because in some of these podcasts have drifted into different topics right? They've drifted into topics that are political and I don't really want to hear, uh, political takes in windows weekly. I listen to windows weekly to literally get updated on the minutia of the windows 11 updates and Microsoft office 365, which sounds super nerdy and not interesting to some, <laughs> but, but it is useful to me because I find it interesting and, and discussions about Microsoft and they talk about Xbox and they, everything Microsoft. They don't talk about any other company, just that. And there's always news. There's always new hardware. I've unsubscribed to things when they start to uh, kind of venture. So when I think about providing advice to people who want to use this medium for educational purposes, I, I suppose that's what I reflect on. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I mean, that's probably part of the reasons why I unsubscribed to that one podcast, because the whole purpose was I was looking to get some, you know, information on business and tech. And mm -hmm. they started getting into politics. And it was the same stuff that they're regurgitating and just harping on. And so, so um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a you know, being a, somebody who teaches business communications, that's one of the things is that you should always focus in on your audience and uh, everything should yeah. be catered to that audience. And we had that discussion earlier today. We go through, we kind of have an informal system for what articles we add. I add them to my, I have a pin board account. I tag them with podcast topic that up today and I had marked them as unread, which apparently makes them invisible. To you. I had no idea that was a of the platform to fix that but you know and then we kind of go back and forth of what we want to include and um and the discussions always revolve around is this relevant to education and particularly education technology and if it is relevant but it's not obvious then we have to explain that to people about why we're including it and why it's an interesting perspective and that's there's kind of a talking you know with your audience um, it, it's on there could be interesting and try to perspective or based on feedback that you get. But then the other aspect is also to inform people of what they don't know. And, uh, and sometimes we have to make those, those connections a bit clearer to people. And so I guess running a podcast is kind of like running a business or communications outfit or marketing in the sense that, you know, audience really does matter and politics or sorry, and podcasts that get famous people together to talk about whatever and they're unprepared and they veer off course and they don't stick to their uh, specific mission of the podcast don't necessarily do that well, even if they're highly promoted. That's another thing I don't know. A lot of podcasts are, uh, well, they get advertisers and they're, you know, they clearly spend a lot of money to push it. But then I wonder how long are they going to last? Because there's a lot of dead podcasts in the world. Yeah, no, for sure. So I guess with that, um, if there's any, unless there's something else you wanted to add, we could move into our, our EdTech news for today. And we have a several articles. Did you want to get started with one? 
Sure. I guess we can start off with the somewhat controversial one, which is that there sure. was a NYU chemistry professor that um, got fired recently. And uh, I first came across this. I think I mentioned this to you. I, I saw a episode of Bill Maher uh, real time and they were debating this. Uh, they were talking about this uh, professor that literally has written the textbook on organic chemistry and um, a bunch of students got together did a petition and because of that petition they uh, went and fired this uh, individual and then that got what me was there was there for that petition? they were saying that it was too hard there's a high the failure was rate too hard. there was too high okay. hard high failure rate um you know and so made me kind of question i mean especially like they were talking about on that uh, episode with um, uh, bill maher which I, I was a little bit disappointed with because uh, you know here uh, i don't know maybe i hold bill to a high re regard and that he should be going and uh, you know analyzing things from a critical uh, analysis critical thinking perspective but some of the the points that they brought up was well you know this is a pre-med course the pre-med course should go and, uh, you know, be something that, if, especially if they're going on to become doctors, they, you probably want people who pass, you know, so, uh, which uh, kind of made sense. And, um, you know, uh, I think a little bit of that cancel culture and so on, they kind of brought up, but I mean, I, I dug into it a little bit more because it's, and this was one of the discussions, is this going to be relevant uh, to um, our audience and, um, and, and so on, but uh uh, yeah, it was interesting because first off, uh, one of the things that if you start looking in, uh, into this, there was 82 students that created this petition in the class. Okay, out, of, out of how many? Out of 350. So, I mean, to me, like this is just like it could be possibly some of the bottom, uh, you know, maybe low achieving students in the first place. But who knows they talked about the condescending and uh you know uh, tone and being demanding and so on and uh, so I, I looked at it a little bit more and uh, one of the things that he brought up is that uh, you know over the pandemic uh, he brought up the fact that people weren't paying attention to the questions and uh, there wasn't that uh, attention to detail and uh, you know to his credit i mean i i was uh, somewhat uh, impressed that you know, this uh, professor, in fact, actually spent a significant amount of money. So $5,000 in this one article that I came across, uh, just building online resources and recording lectures and uh, even had a website to provide, uh, you know, tutoring for the students who wanted to, you know, perform better in the course. So, you know, conceivably, again, I, I haven't taken the course. The last course, I don't know about you, Eric, but, you know, I, I may have mentioned this in the past. I'm not a science person. Uh, Education-wise, uh, the only course that I ever took, which was uh, part of my undergrad, was, uh, you know, you had to take one science option. I took rocks mm -hmm. for jocks, uh, you know, intro to geology. So <laughs> that was the extent of my scientific. Is that what the course was called or is that just like your... <laughs> That was just like our kind of like informalist students. Uh, not that I wasn't even a jock, but that, that's, that's what it was called. That's so funny. Uh, but, um, you know, it, uh, at the end of it, uh, it's, uh, again, I, I, I don't know much about science, but I would think that there's probably harder subjects than maybe organic chemistry in the science. Physical chemistry is harder. What's that? 
I, I my well, I'm you know, my opinion is that physical chemistry was more difficult. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, who knows? There could be even just physics and other things that could be pretty challenging and difficult that I, I would think. But in any event, yeah, so the uh, this particular individual, which, uh, you know, he's 82 years old, probably could have retired uh, a long time ago and uh, has continued. Um, uh, I mean, he probably would have retired, he even mentioned, uh, but now he's gone fired uh, because of this petition. And I mean, it brings up a, a number of topics, but I, I think we want to keep it focused more on the ed tech side of things. Uh, which I, I find it interesting, like he's built all these resources, provided a bunch of, uh, you know, options, and still students were having issues. And uh, I mean, I don't know if that speaks to the issue of the quality of resources, or, you know, maybe it's just uh, uh, people's learning styles. I, I'm not exactly sure what the the problem is here. Well, I think what you're getting at is, is interesting. When you first sent me the article, I was like, how does this relate to education? I hadn't looked at the story. So, you know, I was in, in, originally dismissive, but then you, you changed my mind because I didn't look into the fact that this individual, regardless of their firing and whether they're a good teacher and you should have weed out courses, all that aside, there was a ton of resources that were built, recorded lectures, extra materials, extra help. And I think it speaks to um, kind of an assumption in education that if we provide um, perhaps more opportunities um, for review of content that people will just naturally do better because clearly but th that's not necessarily the case and and that could be a result of quality that could be a result of delivery you know how long are the videos are they really dry um, but th there is a tension here and I think if you can when you read between the lines of the article it you know, what is, what is really good, uh, education, um, and what, are, what are the, uh, contracts, so to speak that, uh, or the, uh, the, uh, not contracts, that's not the right word, but the obligations from the two parties, there's the obligations from the educator side, and then there's the obligations from the student side and it's together, uh, they, you know, they have to fulfill kind of that, uh, that contract, almost like a social contract. And what I think about and engagement is not necessarily as education. And clearly there was a time in history. <laughs> I know there was a time in history when there was no ability to go and record and provide extra materials and there was no expectation or desire to do so. And they were still teaching organic chemistry and people were doing either very well in the course or very bad. And so is there a question, is there a correlation uh, between providing these extra materials and um, turning around perhaps or, or increasing the percentage of people who want to be engaged in the material in the class. And I'm not sure that there is a correlation. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. And, uh, again, I, th I think part of this too, like the, there's, uh, it, it's brought forward, I mean, uh, the debate of, um, the pandemic and now it's maybe a bit of that blend of both worlds right where you have those online resources that have been brought into the class and again to your point like eric just because you have these resources i actually i found this myself it was interesting um so i took some of my videos from two years ago just to show students whether you know to give them an idea of what to expect coming forward in some of the activities that 
uh, will be graded. And maybe I shouldn't be very surprised, but most students did not watch the videos and they were short videos. They were like three mm -hmm. minutes. Uh, and uh, the only reason why I, I bring this up is because uh, the, so for our co uh, course, the course coordinator actually picked for uh, a major assignment, it's worth 25%, picked the scenario from that video from two years ago. And so when I saw that come through, I deleted it right away because uh, it would have possibly given an edge to the students uh, while they were completing this 25% assignment. And um, but funny enough, again, barely anybody watched the video. So again, it's a, that assumption just because we have it on there, we have it on uh, like our learning management system. It uh, doesn't mean that everybody's going to go and consume that information. And it doesn't matter how short or long it is. Uh, I think just, you know, again, it's uh, if it's just provided as extra material, unless maybe this is maybe one of the reasons why, I mean, I, uh, a lot of times uh, in the past, like years ago, I would actually play videos in the class just so then you're forced to go and watch it. Then I thought that's not the best use of time, but now I'm, I'm reconsidering and thinking about this. Well, I think it comes down to what the course is and why people have to take it too, right? So is it a captive audience versus a, versus a voluntary audience? So in, in this article, the, the concern is that it's a bunch of, it's a pre-med course. Um, so a bunch of people have to take it I'm sure there's a I'm sure just like in every distribution. So if you were to take a, you know, as, um, you know, take multiple sections of the course and survey people based on their satisfaction, their interest, I'm sure you could create a curve and there would statistically, and there would be a distribution of, you know, people in the middle and uh, people who, and then to the right, maybe they'll really like the course and people to the left, they really didn't like the course. And you could kind of come up with a, a distribution scale. And I think that's the case with a lot of courses, but it becomes more contentious with ones that everybody has to take regardless of their inclinations to take it, right? So I find organic chemistry really interesting, but um, I don't, I would not feel the pressure because I have no interest in being a physician. Yeah, no, totally. Now, that being said, I did see a piece of research. I wish I had the citation that said that percentage of people who want to be a doctor uh, as an option when they go into university is something ridiculously high, like 80% or something like that, regardless of major. So like, this is a very common desire, um, maybe because of the status of the profession and their income and the satisfaction and all the, the, the metrics that we ascribe to that prestige. But ultimately, um, with any course, you're going to have a, a deviation, a standard deviation of not only how well people do, but their, but their, their interest and their propensity to be engaged in the course. And so as you get, my opinion is that the pet for when for ed tech to, to relate it back to that, you know, how you make a course engaging and what technologies you use and how to do that purposefully may be a different approach depending on if it's, you know, your base level general education or psych 101 or organic chemistry, which has a kind of a multi-major purpose versus say the payoff that you get by doing that when it's a discipline specific course that maybe could be an elective for somebody else with assuming they meet the prerequisites but is primarily for people who are majoring in that discipline right so i suspect that you know that extra material the engagement maybe that's uh, more use in uh in an area where 
you kind of have an audience that's already specializing in that they're they're, going to be interested in the more they can get the better um i don't know i don't know if that's true but it's a in my opinion it's a good research question around ed tech and creating maybe blended learning materials and how you do that because it, it would give instructors an idea of time can we really judge prerequisite courses that people have to take whether they like them or dislike them the same way that we judge you know a fourth year marketing course for a fourth year marketing major and my answer is probably we can't yeah yeah for sure i mean do you have expert like do you find the engagement level of what people are willing to use it differs depending on the level of the course and whether it's mostly people who are in that field of interest versus kind of a more general course well, I mean, one of the courses I teach is a mandatory course for the degree. So half the people, right. you know, it's it's not like they're there because they, uh, you know, want to be. And, and in fact, uh, I saw this uh, attendance wise, uh, you know, it's uh, already kind of decreased. So um, which, uh, again, I mean, that's they're they're adults, so they can go and make the choice of how they want to go and spend their time. But um, I mean, certain certain courses, especially the ones when I teach like a higher level, I, I agree with you, like what you're saying. Uh, I mean, typically there's an interest, right? There's a, a you know, there, whether you're going and majoring in, let's say, uh, let's say it's entrepreneurship or marketing. Those people are in those courses because they have already taken courses in that subject before. And so this is just furthering their, um, you know, uh, expertise in that and their interest is already there. So generally speaking, and so obviously they are going to be more engaged. And in fact, even the, the grade curve reflects that, right? So the grade curve, uh, generally speaking, in those like, you know, higher level courses, usually uh, there is higher grades because of that interest level. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. I, but, I, but I get this question, you know, from colleagues, like I have colleagues who have won teaching awards who are phenomenal teachers, you know, uh, really care about the pedagogy have really take it you know prep their lectures go in with kind of a performance mindset which i I think is like a good idea and i have heard similar challenges from those people in these kind of if they're teaching a more general course um as well so i i guess my point is is that it, it does this this is a controversial topic for this particular course at this university and this instructor but it does raise interesting questions about how much is reasonable um, from a technology perspective to try to increase engagement. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, We have a few other articles we can take a look at. I don't know if there's a particular one that you wanted to focus on. You did find one regarding Lego that was pretty cool. Yeah, so I mean, the the Lego one just... uh, Again, I think this uh, further uh, substantiates some of what we were talking about in terms of, um, you know, just investment and growth in ed tech. But uh, yeah, so Lego is going and acquiring an ed tech uh, firm called BrainPop. And so uh, what do they do again, BrainPop? Let me just see here. Some, for some reason, is that like <laughs> animated? Think. Is that like animated? Yeah, videos? it's like short animations uh, for math and music. Yeah. So K to 12. So they're, they're developing that, uh, yeah, for math, music, kind of fundamental courses. So in that article, did they state why they were purchasing it or was there any speculation? 
Well, and again, they they spent eight hundred seventy five million dollars, uh, but uh, you know, Lego. This is further to uh, these investments that they're making. It's to become uh, a global force for learning through play. And uh, I mean, already it's uh, it's one of those things. If you look at there's uh, companies that have uh, um, uh, invested, uh, for instance, uh, even in uh, Epic Games and uh, mm-hmm. looking into like Fortnite and building up the metaverse and and so on. And so um, uh, again, I think it's just we've talked about this previously. Where if you look at it from, uh, if you want to grow, what are some of the biggest industries? You know, healthcare, education. And I think this is one of the the reasons it might not be, um, you know, the best kind of deal from a business strategy standpoint. But you know, this is uh, this is where they're looking at um, uh, moving forward. Uh, and uh, again, I think this is where some of that uh, surge in ed tech is uh, potentially going to help uh, in terms of the Lego's business interests. Well, it's interesting, this idea, this kind of bridging between physical play. It, this is m- perhaps most useful f- uh, for those interested in, in K-12 ed tech. But there, there is an interesting dynamic that's happening right now uh, in terms of the merging. I, I guess that's how I see it, between kind of what physical play and kind of free play and the digital universe, right? So... Uh, mm-hmm. I, Brain Pop is not what I expected Lego to buy because it seems like more like an assessment, like a quiz platform, right? So my my question from an ed tech perspective is, okay, so there's an app that helps students learn these fundamentals. That's kind of a supplement, supplementation, uh, you know, supplement, supplementary. I have to. I feel like I've been drinking or something like this. I can't, uh, I can't say simple words, <laughs> supplementary tool. Right. And so like when I grew up, there was supplementary tools like phonics, there was all these kind of like read and learn, uh, as you go. And so I guess my interest is that what is Lego going to do with this? I mean, certainly they're going to tie it into their physical Lego toys. I mean, they have to. Yeah. And so would it be, um, some sort of integration with sensors and apps, I guess is what I'm curious. I guess for, I'm interested in just speculating at this point, what they might do with such an acquisition. Let me, if you, if you, if you'll uh, engage me with this, I have, I'm interested in Lego because I've been, I have a nephew who I'm not going to name, but he's really interested in, in Lego and he also really likes Minecraft. And it's not a coincidence. It's big among uh, students. It's been big for a long time. Lego was big when I was a kid. The interesting is that he's interested in a Lego sets uh, that are the Super Mario Lego sets. And there is a tie-in I have here to, to this article that you shared. So the Super Mario Lego sets are really interesting because, okay, so Super Mario is a video game. I grew up playing video games. I still play them. And you know, you go through these worlds and it's kind of a platform puzzle. There's secrets, there's things you can do. And there is an element in Lego games of creation and kind of shaping your environment. And I think that's why Minecraft took off because it's kind of like a, a learning through play. A lot of uh, high schools, a lot of universities use Minecraft as a tool for, you know, building out things that you conceptualize and using it for assessments and you know physics and all sorts of stuff like that. So it has a lot of uses. So 
But what they've done with the Super Mario set is that it actually, the, the figures themselves have motion sensors in them. And so Mario's face and the little icon, there's like a little screen on his chest. I'm assuming there's a battery in this. And through Bluetooth and motion, it reacts to the environment you build. So it's kind of like building your own level, so to speak, which is super cool. So Mario, oh, the coin cool. shows up when he's under the block and he wants to hit it, right? So I saw that uh, and I had no idea this level of interaction was involved. And I'm wondering, oh, I wonder if when you sent me this article, I was thinking maybe Lego is going to take what they learned through Bluetooth interaction with Super Mario, which, you know, it's it's like recreating Super Mario in the physical world. I'm like, I wonder if they can recreate some of the learning reinforcement through motion and through proximity and Bluetooth and stuff like that and like kind of tie the app to the toy. Because there is something about being on screens that I think is all the time, which is concerning to both educators and parents, but there's also a value for app-based learning. So then how do we bring that app-based learning and combine it with something in the real world? I guess that's yeah. where I'm going with this. No, and that's, a, uh, I mean, you sent me the link and it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I like that uh, motion sensing, the Bluetooth. I mean, I, I do see the batteries inside those figures and um, yeah, I mean, that's uh that's a good way of blending both worlds, right? The digital with the physical. And um, yeah, and I, I don't think I've seen it being done this way before because it's more maybe the the only thing that uh, I've seen is more so like this kind of like augmented reality. Uh, right, like which Pokemon. is more screens. Yeah, more screens, but this is the opposite. Yeah, and I, I guess I find it interesting um, and it's, again, this is serendipitous. You didn't know that I've been thinking about this. Why would you, why would you know what my nephew and I talk about? Yeah. Uh, you know, but like, we never talked about it, but when you sent me this, I'm thinking, do you, do you think that this is going to be a broader reaction or do you think that this might be a bigger trend a lot of research around some of the downsides of screen time, particularly among young people? And so, oh, we have a new app. We have a new game. But how much time are they in a fixed position on a screen, not getting physical activity? Um, you know, it, when you get into adolescence, then we get into the research around social media. Are people more and that, you know, and the rising depression, anxiety? Jonathan Haidt has talked about that in, in his, uh, his, his really great book with great Greg Lukianoff. And so are you more likely to kind of follow that pattern of having a sedentary screen-based lifestyle? And so I wonder if there's a market has been created out of that concern to get away from that. Well, I mean, I, it's funny, just right before this, I had lunch with my parents and, um, you know, my dad's turning 74 tomorrow. And so uh, one of the things that we were talking about was exactly this, like back when, you know, in his day, you would do something physical all the time and you would be outdoors. And uh, even we were talking about like supplements, like, you know, vitamin D and and so on. And now we don't have that. And I mean, this is where a lot of our economy now is more knowledge based. So we're mm -hmm. sitting at desks and we're not getting up and, you know, doing anything really physical at all to the point where we're now having to go and work out and, um, you know, have other ways just to stay uh, in shape. Uh, but uh, in fact, it probably doesn't even take much. Uh, if you think about it, it's not like you need to be like huge kind of bodybuilding type of person. Just to, it's a matter of just getting out and about. But I mean, it, if you look back, I mean, I, I bet you like somebody like Steve Jobs probably 
uh, be turning in the grave right now because even you remember back in 2007, his pitch was not that everybody be glued to screens. It was, hey, we have this device. It's called a cell phone. You have an MP3 player and a camera. We're taking all three of those things. So now you don't have to carry multiple products and put it into one. But, you know, now it's just uh, everybody like it's I've uh, interestingly enough, like I've been uh, going just being a little bit observant of what goes on. But everybody just pulls out their phone. It's like it's it's almost kind of gotten to the point where like you can't even survive going walking down a hallway without your phone and looking at it. And uh, I mean, I, I think this is where one of the downfalls of technology is uh, even just uh, from what is the long term physical detriment to this well i think you know i i'm i'm interested in things that are going to come down the road and you and you and i have at the beginning of every year our trend and we're going to do this again is our predictions right we kind of evaluate the past predictions and we'll do more predictions and i i really like that because i like to test hypotheses perhaps it's the Maybe I should have been a scientist or something like that, but I, I like, I guess in a way I am a social scientist. I do do social science and education research. And I guess I'm interested in this trend um, from a, from a, both an educator perspective, a business perspective and ed tech, like, is this going to be, maybe this is something we should watch is, is Lego, which I'm a fan of, despite their unbelievably expensive products. I just keep buying them. Because it's good mm -hmm. quality. Uh, is this a, you know, is it worth it? Um, I'm also saying this trend, a lot of students tell me, I'm tired. I'm on a screen all day. I'm sitting all day. You know, I'm having back pain. Uh, I don't like this. Like it, it's, I don't bring this up with students. It's none of my business. Uh, but they do ask me, hey, how would you, you know, how do you get, uh, how do you, uh, you know, organize your day so you have more physical movement and variety? Man, these are questions that come to me not all the time, but serendipitously. And, you know, you and I have noticed that there's more and more people writing their notes, even if it's digital um, or taking yeah. a photo or digitizing things. And so there's this kind of not return to an analog way. I don't think people want to, you know, delete all our cloud infrastructure and get rid of all these inventions because of course some of them are, are really valuable, but I wonder if it's a part of the broader signal. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, even I read something recently, uh, I forget, I think it was on social media, but even as uh, as people are getting older and I actually, we didn't have the technology before, but like, I, I'm actually maybe thinking about this, like, let's say, you know, stories that we would have, like, uh, you know, my dad, he's 74 now, maybe just recording them on my phone and just having some of those conversations uh, and, uh, you know, having like an archive, which again, we didn't have some of this equipment readily available for everybody. Uh, but uh, again, that's, uh, that's something that I wouldn't have thought about, or maybe it is just even an audio recording, but again, now we have the ability to keep the, some of that storytelling and sharing and, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, bringing it down the line but yeah i mean getting back to this this point like i mean i i think it'll be interesting i you know this whole thing with lego like i wasn't aware of this um the super mario but uh, uh certainly i think this kind of puts things into a, a larger perspective uh when you look at this uh, acquisition of brain pop i mean uh they may have some big plans uh, uh, to go and take that uh, you know 
uh, some of this online learning, putting it into the physical and, and so yeah. on. But um, to the point, like, I mean, you may brought up a good point even about Minecraft because you do have both. And, uh, you know, that was something that, uh, you know, uh, I think probably is uh, to its success, right? And so now Lego, uh, in many ways, uh, it's uh, it's gone. I mean, you're right in terms of even being expensive, but then they become beyond what... Uh, even just with their movies, they're, they're becoming like more of an entertainment, like maybe it's edutainment <laughs> type of, uh, you know, approach. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I wonder if there's also a correlation between time on screens and the lack of physical time. And if that can, is a predictor for, um, outside the box, I know that's super cliche, innovative thinking. I mean, so here's an example. So I remember when I was doing graduate work, uh, my instructor, this is my master's degree, brought in Lego, his son's Lego. And yeah. he said, oh, to challenge, get everyone to define what innovation means. And I'm a librarian. So we're talking about innovation in the context of information science and stuff like that. What is innovation? And so is it number of ideas? Is it ideas plus available resources? And it's a good question, right? And so, okay, well, here's uh, here's here's three or four at the front of the classroom, and so you, this person gets two Lego blocks or Duplo or whatever it was. This person gets five. This person gets ten. How many different variations did they make? And it was, I couldn't do very many because I had the two blocks, right? <laughs> so it was an explanation of resources actually do matter. I mean, you know, you know, and that only scales so far, but it, I, I never forgot that, you know, one of the reasons what I do um, whiteboard mind mapping and draw ideas and try to create uh, research paths and so show students how to develop that, which is, you know, I get asked a lot of the same questions, you know, the general research questions is because there is a physicality, there's just a dramatic difference in the number of ideas generated when I just close the computer and I work with someone on paper versus when we're working on a screen. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, again, that's part of, you know, if we are going to be in the classroom, I mean, you have that ability. I mean, look at even just using whiteboards or, you know, uh, having um, the chart uh, kind of uh, paper and using, uh, you know, flip charts, I guess, is what I'm looking for, or maybe even sticky notes and other things. I mean, again, why wouldn't you do some of that? And uh, probably from a learning and reinforcement standpoint, like how you mentioned with this Lego exercise, I mean, that's that's ingrained in your brain now all these years, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think about, technology and I think of its capture, right? So the ability to take a digital photo was a big deal when it came out because I didn't have to have film and I didn't have to go get it processed at, you know, shoppers yeah. drug mart or whatever digital and being able to take pictures and being able to digitize doc, you know, it gave me the ability to digitize things in the physical world. So then I was able to get the tactile hands-on benefits, but then digitize it for later. So it wasn't lost because prior to these kinds of capture, you just had to recreate it or retype it, whatever the document was, or, you know, flip charts, right? I've been in many conferences where they do flip charts, then they take photos of the flip charts that goes on the blog. And then, so you get the best of both worlds. And I wonder if, 
um, perhaps it swung too far to the digital first. Um, we have a few more things that we can cover. I have now opened so many tabs that I don't have the title <laughs> and I just have the favicon. Apologies for that. Um, I don't know, maybe the browser cache reset and I just reloaded all the, all the tabs that I had and then they're all trying to load at the same time. So, and then your face froze and then that was a problem. So now you can still hear me. Yep. Okay. So there's an article from the New York times called, uh, with online learning, uh, let's take a, a breath and see what worked and what didn't. So, you know, they, in many ways, they're discussing things that we have speculated about, uh, covered in more of an incremental fashion on this podcast. Um, but you know, ultimately, um, there's an associate professor of economics. So this is at the city college of New York, which has actually produced some really interesting research. So this is Dr. Shankar. Uh, so I'm going to quote here. So in a, as an associate professor of economics, Dr. Shankar knew that one of the most important requirements of scientific research was often missing from studies of the effectiveness of online higher education, a control group, right? So before it was difficult to assess because you didn't have uh, a proper empirical test or you had like a control group, uh, the you know, that could be either be nothing or that could be, um, you know, the face-to-face -face traditional learning versus the outcomes from online learning. And so the pandemic is kind of one of the first times they've had data from multiple institutions to kind of compare and contrast um, an experimental group from a control group, which is a little bit more scientific um, than you would otherwise have uh, perhaps in some of the learning sciences. So, I mean, the article is interesting. It talks about how online research in education grew, like online education research. There was like, uh, at the American Educational Research Association, there's 236 papers were prevented with the word online in their titles compared to like 158 before the pandemic. So there's like a 50% increase, at least in online education research, which I think is probably a good thing because now a review article could be done, a literature review, a meta-analysis or something that would even be a better quality of evidence. Um, they had a few other aspects of this article that were interesting. Um, for instance, they found that graduations, uh, they talked about how graduations have sped up. So there was another study that found that providing required courses online uh, helps students graduate more quickly because in-person versions of the course are often full or unavailable. So we kind of related to our last topic where you get these bottlenecks where you have these required courses. Those are the ones that often fill up and in face-to-face -face only environments. So, and you mentioned this before, Chris, like, especially for some of those key areas, providing that as an option, yeah. like imagine not being able to graduate, not because you're bad, just because you just didn't wake up in time or you couldn't get the register for the course. So you're not really being evaluated on performance. You're being evaluated on how fast your you know, internet connection is to load that registration page. Uh, that's not really <laughs> fair. So to being able to, ex but being able to expand it because there's a physical space constraint on the campus to have more online sections allowed people not to have to do an extra semester, an extra year um, yeah. because of that. And it's interesting because I'm going to quote here from the article. It says students in general are also at least somewhat more interested in learning online now than they were before the pandemic. There's some evidence to suggest that. And you and I talked about that when we were invited to speak to McGraw-Hill Publishing. And that's a consensus of roughly 75% of university 
uh, chief online officers in the changing landscape of online education called CHLOE survey by the nonprofit Quality Matters and the higher education consulting firm EduVentures. And we've actually had some articles from EduVentures on the podcast. College and university students were all now, uh, well, all now be online for at least part of their educations. And these administrators almost unanimously say, so this is American centric, but kind of that idea, there was a study that we mentioned some time ago where uh, the, the likelihood that somebody would take an online course again, uh, you know, was based on kind of like, had they taken one in the past? So whether they liked it or not, I mean, there's going to be a percentage of people in a distribution who don't like it, but then if they had exposure to it, just the probability went up that they would take it. And so having sections that are required uh, in a you know, degree and they're online, if everyone has some exposure, then more people are more, more, a larger percentage of people are going to be more open to taking that. And then that subsequently grows the online component of the institution, which is kind of cool. And there's also this idea that's tied in with blended learning, right? So it doesn't have to be one or the other. So it's like, I took a face-to-face -face course, but we had three lectures online or we had to go off campus and do something remote. Um, and that also has an impact on people's likelihood if they're going to take more um, online. The last thing I'll say about this article is that uh, they talk about how faculty at American institutions favored hybrid. So it says by last year, more than half of all faculty said they agreed or strongly agreed that they wanted to combine online with face-to-face -face instruction, a Bayview analytics uh, firm uh, survey found. A Harvard University task force found that 82% of faculty uh, there were interested in adding digital tools they adopt while teaching remotely to their in-person classes. And you and I kind of talked about that last time. How do we bring together some of the online stuff and bring it into a classroom or do face-to-face -face or to kind of take the best of both worlds. And I, it's interesting that the New York Times has finally did a big piece on this now because um, it's kind of something we predicted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look at it here like in the, the local institutions and it's, uh, I don't know about other faculties and, and so on, but one thing that I was, uh, I, I noticed here at Mount Royal, for instance, there was no, uh, I can't speak for every department, but the ones that I am teaching and there was no online options whatsoever. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure some people probably would be okay with it. Right. And uh, in fact, uh, for the first time ever, we, there was such a wait list. We actually, for the, the required business communications course that we have, we added a section. So we've had 10 sections that were offered. Um, and, uh, you know, two of them are at the exact same time, but just taught one's taught by me, one's taught by another instructor. But again, I, I would not be surprised if there are people who for a mandatory course, maybe they would prefer just taking an online option. In fact, uh, earlier this year in the spring semester, I, I saw this firsthand where I had, um, you know, and we did the same kind of thing. So we had in-person sections, two of them. One, uh, I was teaching, there was a huge wait list. We created an online section and most of my students actually transferred to the online as opposed to the in-person. And again, I think this is where, you know, I think some students, they just, if you, if they have to prioritize, you got to look at their needs and, you know, uh, it's not easy to just 
have employment and then just take a course in person, right? And so, uh, and this is where I think uh, I look at some of what like University of Lethbridge, what they're doing, and maybe it's a different kind of student population that they're catering for, uh, mm-hmm. but they do have, you know, most of their classes are evening, right? Or the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then beyond that, they have the option for in-person or online, right? And so uh, they've continued with that. And I, th- I think that's uh, interesting. Uh, kind of approach. I've I have heard at Mount Royal there's some uh, courses uh, in in other faculties. I think like nursing and um, maybe education where they do have a bit of what you were talking about, like the hybrid, where they have uh, uh, you know a certain amount of the learning is done online at their own pace, and then they bring them into the classroom for some components. Right, so you do have a bit of that best of the both worlds. It'll be interesting to see, but yeah, I mean, I I think at the end of it, really, uh, what our prediction is that we see that there's going to be more options available for students. Yeah, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think uh, the options help people. I think it gives faculty the flexibility. It it gives uh, instructors the opportunity to teach sections that are convenient for them and get the skills they need. I mean, you're only going to be good at teaching online if that's what you want to do or if you practice it. And it also gives students the ability to do that as well. And I like the idea of the hybrid, kind of like open education. There's um, there's a spectrum of openness in education now, you know, how you reduce course material costs in your class. There's kind of a, a reference point there. It doesn't, it's not all or nothing. It's not a, a all either or thinking, right? There's kind of a, a spectrum of online education. So I like I do like the options for people. I think that's the positive part of this story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even it's probably a good thing for the students, too, because as there's more and more uh, remote employment opportunities, they're going to have to be used to doing some of this online kind of, uh, you know, uh, both uh, learning, but also communicating and uh, uh, getting their work done. What else should we cover in our news bucket? There's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about. There was one from 74 um, that was kind of related to surveillance in ed tech. Yeah, and I think it's just kind of uh, basically reinforcing what we've been kind of bringing to the forefront is that there's more and more uh, surveillance that's taking place and there's people pushing back. Yeah, this is tied somewhat to that bill that came from the Biden uh, White House called the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which was oh, okay. intelligent uh, Bill of Rights. But as part of that, uh, which is a broader paper that talks, uh, I can quote one of the paragraphs in this article. We don't have to go into the details, but it says, though the blueprint lacks enforcement, schools and education technology companies should expect greater federal scrutiny soon. In a fact sheet, the White House announced that the Education Department um, would release by early 2023 recommendations on schools' use of artificial intelligence that define for the safety, fairness, and efficacy of AI models used within education and introduced guardrails that build on existing uh, education data privacy regulations. So. I don't understand the federal legal system in the United States well enough to know where the government um, uh, authority begins and where it ends uh, when it comes to the the Department of Education. 
uh, other than I know a little bit about the student loan problems in the States. But I think ultimately the, the, the gist of this article is that um, monitoring, uh, particularly proctoring software and monitoring um, people is a problem because of data collection, uh, potentially identifying people, removing their right to privacy and, and all, the, all that jazz, which is what we've talked about in the past. Yeah, and actually, uh, on a side note here, um, uh, I was chatting with a former student, and for some of these like financial, um, you know, kind of accreditations, uh, it was interesting. Like I did mine back when I was a banker, but uh, apparently now everything is done on the computer, and the kind of it almost sounds like you going in through an airport. You know, you got to go and show that you don't have stuff in your your pockets, in your, up your pants, rolled up your sleeves. <laughs> you know, they check your glasses. Maybe I guess the, you know you might have Google glasses that uh, are scanning everything. Uh, and then at the front of the room, they actually have cameras, so they have proctoring. So each uh, computer has like uh, webcams, but then they have like this monitor, almost like a security monitor that is being viewed in front of everybody. So it seems quite the creepy type of process. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, I mean, and it's funny that we're discussing this now because many years ago, many years ago, it seems like now, I think it's a, I think that's also a fact, not a perception. I used to work in education technology and, and at that time, uh, there was quite a bit of research being published. It should have been 2013, 2014, looking at remote proctoring proctoring being, you know, watching people do their exams to make sure they're not cheating. Right. And so remote proctoring software was being brought out, but even then, which was a, uh, you know, they're pretty primitive tools at the time, there was a pretty, uh, big backlash against the privacy implications. I remember seeing a demo. I don't remember which, uh, company it was whereby the students basically had to buy a camera, like they didn't have a textbook for the course. It was all online. I think maybe the maybe the proctoring software was tied into the the readings, or there was there was something there. But they had to buy basically the equivalent of like an Amazon Echo Show, which is the Amazon Echo with like a camera in it that would watch them. And they're supposed to keep it in their room if they were learning online. <laughs> and then the company was trying to sell the idea in a positive way because you know they gave different options of with the device that had the camera in it could look like it could be a teddy bear that you put by your desk, or it could be like a tree with a camera in it or an action figure. And it was kind of like, you get to choose the avatar of what spies on you. And it, I think I even made the local paper at the time we were looking into it, but just to see, I mean, we didn't pursue this, but with COVID it's interesting that this stuff was just kind of like rammed through the system because it was in a, you know, in some, in some cases, an emergency uh, and now, well, now there's infrastructure built and there's, there's precedent and standards, right? So how do you reel that back? I think the last thing that we could talk about is that, and I haven't actually read this, uh, but there was a tweet that I saw. So from Athabasca University, uh, Athabasca University Press. So Athabasca is in our online education institution in Alberta. Um, and there's a book that's been published by um, Martin uh, Weller, or Veller, uh, who is a professor of ed tech and the Institute of Educational Technology at the UK's Open University. And he's published this book through uh, AU Press called 
metaphors of ed tech. Uh, I have not read this yet, um, but I believe it is an open access uh, book. So we can certainly put it in our show notes. And the description is the criticisms leveled at online education during the COVID-19 pandemic revealed not only a lack of understanding about how education technology can be deployed effectively, but a lack of imagination. Martin Weller provides new ways of thinking about open uh, education technology through a wide range of metaphors by using metaphors as a mental model. Uh, So interesting. Um, Maybe that's something we can take a look at and report back next time. I haven't, again, I haven't read it. I'll put it in our our show notes, but I thought something we should flag. Yeah, no, for sure. I like his uh, cover with the the jaws on there. (laughs) That's right. It's coming for you, man. (laughs) Uh, is there anything even, else that you want to highlight today? Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, no, even I like how on the, the the ship itself it says Meta and then the number four. <laughs> so, anyways, um, no, I don't think uh, we've covered a lot. Uh, we've had a lot of discussions. Um, I think we're we're good. I mean, the only other things that were um, kind of coming up was uh, just from an economic standpoint. There's, um, I, I don't think it's just limited to ed tech, but many companies have had to go and lay off. And so there's uh, one that's laid off. It's uh, based out of India that's laid off like 25 or 2,400 people. And then, you know, uh, people just talking about while the the honeymoon might be over for ed tech, uh, there's probably going to be a second boom. Um, so, uh, you know, again, that's, uh, I think this is just worldwide. Who knows right now with uh, just how uh, everything is going uh, politically and, um, you know, globally, but um uh, definitely is something for people to kind of uh, look at because uh, uh, this technology it's every company every industry uh, we're we're all using technology and it's just a matter of uh, finding the best ways and i mean it'll be interesting to read this book this metaphors of ed tech yeah i'll definitely do that well that sounds like probably a good place to end it so we'll take a look at that and we'll be back next time all right awesome You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.